Never feel sorry for yourself. Okay, when you say adversity, um, you don't have much to eat, but you have something to eat. You, you don't have this and that, but you have something. And always that positive, look at that positive type thing. And I've just, that stuck with me my whole life. Never feel sorry for yourself. That's Frank Shankwich, co-founder of Make-A-Wish Foundation. Adversity brings out the very best in people, and Frank is a living example of that. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. I spoke with Frank Shankwish when he came to Seattle celebrating Level Up Seattle. Now, the goal of Level Up is to provide homes for high school seniors who have aged out of the foster care system. Where do they go? Oftentimes, they end up on the streets. I will be featuring Level Up Seattle on a future show. Dan Butner, a National Geographic Fellow, has identified locations in the world where people live longer, happier, and healthier lives. Why are some people active well into their 90s and others are ready for a retirement center in their 50s? Dan Butner shares some of those reasons. Spoiler alert, the most important factor is where you live. Where is Seattle in the mix? 20 years ago, there was a segment on my radio show called Profiles of Experience. I interviewed newsmakers of the day. Today, I want to replay an interview I had with John Ellis, who was then the president of the Seattle Mariners. A new outdoor baseball stadium had just been approved, which of course is now T-Mobile Park, and the new Hall of Famer, Edgar Martinez, was in his prime. Back with Frank Shankwich, founder of Make-A-Wish Foundation, in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Frank Shankwich, creator and founder of Make-A-Wish Foundation, is my guest. Make-A-Wish grants wishes to children with life-threatening illnesses. The foundation has 64 chapters in the U.S. and another 34 internationally. Over 400,000 wishes have been granted since it began again in 1980. As a child, Frank lived with a tremendous amount of adversity. He spent his early years in tents and in trailers and eventually wound up in Arizona, where he graduated from high school and then went on to college. He joined the Air Force and was stationed in England. After receiving an honorary discharge, he returned to the U.S. After a successful stint with Motorola, he joined the Arizona Highway Patrol as a motorcycle officer where he nearly lost his life. He retired as a homicide detective after 42 years of service. While with the Highway Patrol, he ran across Chris, a 7-year-old boy who suffered from leukemia. Now, Chris wanted to be a Highway Patrol motorcycle officer just like Pooch and John from the TV show Chips. Before Chris succumbed to his illness, Frank paved the way for Chris to become the first and only honorary Arizona Highway Patrol officer in history. His induction included a custom uniform, badge, and motor officer wings. He got to sit on Frank's motorcycle, 
which was exactly like the one that was featured on the TV show Chips. That was probably his greatest thrill. Chris was buried in his home state of Illinois with full police honors and Frank leading the police funeral procession. Frank has lived a pretty amazing life, which I can go into great detail about, but let's just get on with the interview. It seems to me that adversity has been your entire life, at least the very beginning of it. Do you think uh, the adversity that you had growing up really led to where you're at now and how you look at the world? Yes, definitely. And, and like you say, from the younger years, the mentors, the father figures, coaches, teachers, and this and that, um, never feel sorry for yourself. Okay, and you say adversity. Um, you don't have much to eat, but you have something to eat. You, you don't have this and that, but you have something. And always that positive, look at that positive type thing. And I've just, that stuck with me my whole life. Never feel sorry for yourself. I mean, there's people that are worse off than you are, obviously. So any little thing you have, be happy for. And it's just slowly over the years where I got a little more comfortable, you know, better salaries, better living conditions, obviously, and it's just worked out. Well, yeah, I would think your mantra in so many ways is uh, from that mentor you mentioned, turning a negative situation to a positive. Turn it and find yes. something positive out of that. Was that really the game changer for you? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and I've applied that to my whole life, as I mentioned in there, uh, to work, especially uh, as a police officer. You can't do that. Why not? Well, it's just never been done. Well, why don't we do it? Well, and I'd find a loophole in the law where all of a sudden now they've changed the law, let's say, different type of arrests and investigations we could do. You can't do that. Well, let's, let's find out how we can. Take that negative to the positive. You also talked about the environment versus genetic. Based on your experience, it seems to me that it's much more environmental than it is, let's say, inherited abilities or disabilities. Well, yeah, and, and, and again, coaches, teachers, uh, military, just this whole group of people teaching this work ethic, character, integrity, and integrity is probably one of the biggest things. I mean, always, always be proud of what you do and make people proud of what you have done. Uh, don't embarrass yourself. Teach others, biggest thing, teach others with respect. If I'm real nice to you, what's gonna happen? You're gonna be nice to me, right? Yeah, yeah pretty much. Do that with everybody, do that with everybody. And one of the things I learned too, I'm so pleased you saw this meet and greet, and I'm not boasting about that, but people, I'm, I'm so flattered when people want to take the time to come and speak to me, but I always make it a point, what's your name, where are you from to live local, what do you do, to turn the conversation to them, because now we're, they make me feel important by wanting to come up, but I want to give that equal thing back to them too. Tell me about yourself real quick. Well, I was getting frustrated because uh, <laughs> I wanted to interview you and we're here now, but I could see the magnet that you brought to the people and came up and they really wanted to meet with you because that came across in your presentation, mm -hmm. that uh, you're that type of person, you're very approachable. What I kept thinking maybe about you is that you were at the wrong place at the right time or the right place at the wrong time. My whole life. <laughs> yeah, pretty fascinating that way. Would you characterize that as, as true? I'm, in a sense, yes, uh, and I, I talked about, well, obviously the Make-A-Wish Foundation, but if it wasn't for the TV series Chips, there would be no, no Make-A-Wish Foundation. If it wasn't for, uh, it was a custom agent uh, in Phoenix that introduced us to the little boy, told us about the boy Chris. If it wasn't for him, it would never happen. 
why did I get chosen out of, uh, we had 60-some motorcycle officers at the time, to be the one to meet this little boy, to interact with him. And just all of these small world events coming together all the time. Are there different type of wishes today than there were in 1980? No. Well, I say no. Excuse me, that was such a spontaneous response. Um, in 1980, um, trying to think about, I want to meet the president. The kids would never think about that, especially a computer. That's a big thing now. Uh, I want a computer whole system. I want a, a green screen and video cameras so I can make my own commercials and movies. Uh, just like that, that's growing. But it's still a basic. The Disney is still the biggest, biggest wish. Um, I want to meet the sports stars. That's still a big wish. Movie stars, not so much anymore because who, these kids don't know. I don't know half the movie stars per se. We're, we're back in the day. There were so many of them. So you're tracking demographic shifts in, in many yes, ways like yes. that. You know, it's not, it's not it's yeah. a big a deal in, in other areas. And sports stars still remain... Uh, very, very list. popular. Wrestling, John Senna. He's uh, uh, granted more wishes than anybody as far as meeting. And he's one of these top celebrities. There's so many, and, and I know they're busy. Uh, meet and greet, photo session, talk to the child, and it's done. Where John Senna and some of these other people will spend the full day with him. It's not just hello. Let's go hang out, man. And also <coughs> uh, looking at, let's say, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. This is Mike Flynn's question, by the way. And so I wanted to let you know that. And that is evidence that maybe occurred unintended consequences that actually when you see kids get into this arena of positive outlook trying to get a goal, that it may help them extend their life some sort? Yes. Is there yes. any evidence of that? Yeah, and we, we, didn't, we didn't get into that. And we call it the power of a wish. And there was a study done now 25 years ago <clears throat> we would send, the doctors would come to us and say it's a rush wish, meaning you've got to do this for the next month or so. The child's not going to survive. They're strong enough, to, let's say it's a travel or whatever it might be. They're strong enough now, but within six or a month or so, they're going to be dead. The child goes on the wish, comes back, and goes into total remission. And a doctor's going to explain it. And I just say, you know what? This child has gone to something, and I'm so sick of being tired. I got stuff to do after the wish. And it's just maybe a mental thing. But when we started this, like I said, it was all terminal. We switched it to children with life-threatening illnesses. Now, and through the grace of God, modern medicine, like I'd say, 70% of the children are surviving. That's an amazing figure. In our original documents, we have a clause in there to put us out of business. That we won't have to worry about this anymore. There won't be no childhood cancers. Do you feel in some ways that you're filling a void the government is not? Ah, that's so hard. Um, and yes, I mean, just look at what so many government agencies are trying to control things. And this is, this is, um, we don't have to worry about grants, government controlling these type things. And this level up is going to be, like I mentioned, U.S. vets that I'm involved with. It's going to be the same model where we're going to get these kids off the streets and, and into the training, the, the psychological, what's going on, uh, job training, job placement permanent housing eventually, the same model what we do with U.S. vets. And with U.S. vets, the government is not involved. It's not part of the Veterans Administration. 
It is staggering to think that the one example today about uh, the level up where I wasn't aware of this, these kids were in foster care, they hit, what, 18 years old, they gather them up, put their stuff in a garbage bag and say, good luck. I mean, yeah. that's not going to work, and it hasn't worked. No, and, and, and I never thought about this when Katrina and Rick first approached me about what we're doing. I said, I never thought about it, and I mentioned it there back in my narcotics years, <laughs> not a user, but as an agent, undercover agent. I, how many kids? I knew that there were foster kids coming out, and they get in. They don't have anywhere to go, money, so they start burglar robberies, everything else, and then eventually they get into that culture. You are who you hang out with, right? So they get in that drug culture. Now we're arresting and putting them in jail, and, and it's something I never thought of. So this is a program, and I think this is going to be like a Make a Wish or like U.S. Vets. This is going to take off here. I can just see this, and this is going to be nationwide. This is going to be the grassroots effort right here, but this is going to go nationwide. I've already got a group in Arizona from the state government for the foster kids program. We just heard what's going on. How do we get this in Arizona? We're not even, we're going to do a ribbon cutting day for the first place. Another state is already interested. Final question, and that is, what do we not know as citizens about law enforcement that we should? Wow. Right now, respect. That's all. My thanks to Frank Shankwich. I heard about the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which I'm sure you have, but I didn't know the organization had its beginnings all the way back in 1980, and I didn't have a clue about how it started. What a fascinating man, and his incredible journey continues. Frank said that if it wasn't for the TV show Chips, there never would have been a Make-A-Wish Foundation. And by the way, there is a movie about Frank's life and the story about the beginning of the Make-A-Wish Foundation called Wishman. Google Wishman, and you can watch the trailer. My guest is Dan Butner, and he is a National Geographic Fellow and former founder of Blue Zones, an organization that helps Americans live longer, healthier lives. His groundbreaking work on longevity led to his 2005 National Geographic cover story, Secrets of Living Longer, and national bestsellers, The Blue Zones Thrive and The Blue Zones Solution. His next book, The Blue Zones of Happiness, was just recently published by National Geographic. My first question, what triggered his interest in finding happiness in various parts of the world, as well as longevity? Well, I've had the good fortune for better part of 20 years now to work with National Geographic. I think it's the best news outlet in America in many ways. But um, I was an explorer. Just I set records for biking Alaska to Argentina and around the world and across Africa. And and they got more sophisticated about exploration, realized that all the geographical firsts are done, and got interested in expeditions, explorations that could find something that was meaningful to people. And about 17 years ago, I started researching areas around the world where people live the longest. 
we call them blue zones areas. And I wrote a series of New York Times best-selling books and a cover story on that. And then after spending a decade with with long-lived people, you start thinking, well, it's not really worth making it to 100 if you're not happy along the way. So applied this um, technique we use, which is finding this statistically most extraordinary population and then reverse engineering uh, using scientific methods to figure out what they do. So blue zones of happiness has struck out to find the statistically happiest places, and happy in different ways, by the way, and then go backwards from there. What, what do these places teach us on a suboptimally happy part of the world about being happier ourselves? And, and the book lays it out really story-driven science and, uh, and then a, a nice neat how-to on how, how you can statistically get happier yourself. And that's your latest book, Blue Zones of Happiness. Yes. And uh, in that book, is it the 25 happiest U.S. cities? Yes. So part of it is we got Gallup to collaborate with us to create an index that takes the 15 ingredients to happiness, and then we drew from data from 1.5 million surveys to identify the 150 or so happiest places in America. And, uh, and then rank them. So in the book, we also give that list. And, you know, if happiness were a cake recipe, you need the necessities, food, shelter, health care. You, you should have a good partner in life. You should do meaningful work. You should give back a little bit. The most important ingredient in that happiness recipe, the one with the most variability, is where you live. So people don't realize that where you live hugely drives your happiness or lack thereof. So the reason we did this index, number one, is to identify where the happiest place in America. So if you really want to get happier, you'll move to one of those places. Or if you can't do that, at least know what the elements of a happy environment is so that you can change your environment to mindlessly improve your happiness. And that's the idea behind Blue Zones of Happiness. Since uh, Tip O'Neill said all politics is local, I'm going to exercise that yeah. leap to Seattle. Are we in the top 25? And if so, why not? And what can we do to get there? No, you are. You're in the top uh, quintile. And and uh, Seattle does a lot of things right. So, the, so at the municipal level, uh, local leaders should be focused hugely on uh, social spaces. So worldwide, there's a very strong correlation between bikeability and walkability and happiness. So you want to make sure that city planner is designing streets for human beings and not just cars. And Seattle does a pretty good job, not quite as good to your neighbor to the South Portland, but still give it very high grades, A minus or so. Billboards, whatever ordinances that can minimize billboards, billboards make only advertisers happy and they tend to convince us to do things that in the long run make us unhappy, like buy stuff we don't need and eat junk food and so forth. Having trees will improve the uh, easy access to parks. And then a food environment that favors fruits and vegetables. And you want to minimize the burgers, the fries, the pizzas, all that junk that's making America uh, fat. It's also making us unhealthy. The following is an interview I had with John Ellis about 20 years ago. At that time, he was president of the Seattle Mariners. 
Safeco Field was just a dream then, and it was just about ready to be built. What was on John Ellis's mind at that time? Mr. Ellis, uh, could you tell us, do you think uh, the major hurdles have been overcome in terms of future of baseball in Seattle? Who knows what the next one will be, but we've certainly come a very long way, and I, I think the stadium hurdles are essentially over. We have an appeal to go through, and we have a stadium to build, but I think most of the, the big ones are gone. Do you think uh, the Seattle Mariners, what do you think about the ball team and, and what its prospects are for this year? Well, everybody's optimistic in the spring, and, and we're as optimistic as anyone. I think the prospects are, are super. Uh, what we need to do is keep them away from the doctor. Last year, you know, we started out with a whale of a team and had a lot of people hurt. If we could stay well, we should definitely be a contender. What do you think in general the state of Major League Baseball is in now on the big scope across the country, where it's headed? Where do you see, like, I guess the question would be Major League Baseball in five years from now, maybe ten years from now? Yeah, I think it's on its way back pretty clearly. The, the strike really hurt. Uh, it hurt with the fans, it hurt with relationships between players and teams. It, it was a mess. And last year was kind of uh, uh, the first year of rebirth. The uh, change of the championship season has really helped the additional playoffs. And now I just sense enthusiasm throughout the country. I think you're going to see the game bigger and better than ever. And, and the other piece is that baseball is now going to reach out and try to grow internationally as well. And that's important. How about Seattle uh, making headroads into Japan? I know we have, but let's say television and things and, and actually the prospects of going there next year and playing some games. Yeah, remember, Japan has its own very good league. So it's not as if we would go in and superimpose ourselves on them. Uh, but uh, we're looking at working relationships with Japanese baseball teams, for example. You might be interested that one of the most popular American players in Japan is Ken Griffey Jr. So we, we feel we have an affinity, and, and we're going to certainly work at that. John Ellis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You noticed during the interview with John Ellis that the name Ken Griffey Jr. was mentioned as the star of baseball in Japan, meaning that Ichiro, as a baseball player, was an unknown individual to Seattle. But in a couple of years, that was about to change. One, it's that they try to do it the way someone else is doing it. And they, they literally try to rinse and repeat a formula for someone else's brand success. And the reason that doesn't work is because you can't be anyone other than you. And when and what lives beneath that is a lack of confidence and a lack of self-belief. And I think ultimately, culturally in our country and worldwide, we have a self you know, appreciation problem. I'm going to use the word self-love, but that might be a little too, you know, fluffy for your audience. <laughs> so, but it's a, it's really about like self-confidence and really stepping into what it is you want to do without looking over your shoulder and saying, is this right? Should I be doing this? It's like, you think about the people who are the most successful. They're the ones who just, they're kind of, you think they're crazy and they just go for it because they're, they're passionate and they're excited and they know that they can make a big impact. Amber Lillistrom founder of Mastermind. You can listen to her on her own podcast. Her last name is spelled L-Y-L-E-S-T-R-O-M.
I guess there were two things that jumped out at me from the book. And as a caveat, one of them was that you really, really emphasized to think long and hard before you add a business partner. And I, I think I've learned in a couple different ways from experience that that is so incredibly right. It may be the most single most important piece of advice that you get from the book. Odds are you don't need to split all the income with somebody else. Odds are that relationships change and transform, and now you'll be stuck in a relationship that somebody owns half of your company, and maybe they don't contribute the same way. All these little things, you, you can't predict where it goes, but have some confidence, have faith in yourself, and you know, succeed or fail on your own merits. It doesn't have to be a single business partner, and Lord forbid, it certainly doesn't need to be a collective of three or four or five people. There, there's some value to owning 100% of what you're doing and succeeding or failing on your own merits. Steve Deltz, founder and CEO of Pyramid Staging and Events. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to Frank Shankwich, Dan Buner, John Ellis, Amber Lillystrom, and Stephen Diltz for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Voices of Experience will return next Tuesday at 4.30 p.m., and this show will be repeated this Friday at 1.30 p.m. If you want to hear any Voices of Experience show for the last couple of years, just Google Voices of Experience and then click on to Voices of Experience, 1150 AM, KKNW. And if you are interested in going into business for yourself, visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take the self-employment quiz. There are a total of 20 questions on the quiz, and the higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com. The truth is, belonging starts with self-acceptance. Your level of belonging, in fact, can never be greater than your level of self-acceptance. Because believing that you're enough is what gives you the courage to be authentic, vulnerable, and imperfect. Brene Brown Have a great rest of the week or weekend, depending on when you're listening to the show. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer of Voices of Experience. If you would like to talk about the show in any capacity, you can call me directly at 206 206- 459-5536. That's 206-459-5536. And before we go, I would like to thank all of the listeners who shared their experiences about the Apollo 11 mission that resulted in the first man setting foot on the moon 50 years ago this month. I believe that this remains the greatest achievement in human history. One final thought from this remarkable achievement from a listener. Growing up, I was always a big fan of the space program, building scale models as a kid, launching miniature rockets, and collecting Life magazine with photos from the Mercury flights and the Gemini missions. In July of 1969, I was a week shy of my 17th birthday. I had my driver's license and my first girlfriend. I was at Jill's house for the early morning launch. I was home for the landing and the small step for mankind. It was a great time. We could do anything. We've learned so much. We need to go back. We need to keep exploring. This is Bill Boaz in Tucson.